I think listeners should tune into the show today if they're interested in the subject of psychedelics, but they're not really sure what all the hype is about. Uh, maybe they want to explore a little more deeply a couple of these substances, and this might be the starting point. All right. Welcome, everyone, to a new episode of the Neuroflex podcast. I am your host, Toby Passman. Wanted to let you guys know a little uh, Brainwave 101 information here. So brainwaves, um, basically, so the nerve cells in your brain generate these electrical impulses that fluctuate in rhythms known as brainwave patterns. These patterns are associated with your thoughts, your emotions, your state of consciousness, and the overall functioning and health of your nervous system. Some things uh, that can result from dysregulated brainwaves can include poor focus, disrupted sleep, emotional reactivity, brain fog, low motivation, and fatigue. Uh, here at Neuroflex, we do a comprehensive QEEG brain map to assess five major uh, brainwave patterns and to see if your brain is producing them in healthy quantities, whether it's underproducing or overproducing a brainwave, and in what area of the brain is that activity occurring in. So if that's something that interests you and you're in the Fort Lauderdale, Miami area, go ahead and check us out at www.neuroflex.com or you can shoot me a DM at Neuroflex Florida. On to today's episode, uh, we have a very special guest with us on the show, Amanda Siebert. Amanda is an award-winning journalist and photographer covering the intersections of culture, science, and business in cannabis and psychedelics, and owes her life to the plants, fungi, and compounds she writes about. With their help, she has overcome depression, anxiety, and PTSD, and is committed to spreading the word about their potential to help people live more vibrant lives. Amanda is based on unceded, I'm not even sure how to pronounce that, uh, territory mm -hmm. in Newminster, British Columbia. Um, so Amanda, welcome to the show. Mm, thank you so much for having me, Toby. It's a pleasure to be here. Of course. So I was curious kind of what what originally, and maybe I sort of foreshadowed the answer a little bit in just your introduction, but tell me a little about your journey and sort of how you discovered some of these uh, plant medicine compounds and other, other psychedelics. Absolutely. Thanks for the question. So uh, my introduction to psychedelics was actually probably pretty similar to a lot of people's introduction in that it was a recreational pursuit. I wasn't really seeking anything out. But what I did notice, even with that first experience, was it, it sort of felt like a leveling up. Uh, you know, afterwards, I was like, oh, you know, I had some realizations about where I was at in life. And it wasn't until a few years later, I would say five or six years later, when I was diagnosed with this um, triad of mental health conditions, that I was very eager to find a solution Um that did not involve SSRIs. So my doctor was very excited to prescribe SSRIs initially. And I told him, mm, you know, I have a, my family has history with this medication and it didn't really jive with me. I want to seek something else out. So um, that was sort of the beginning, I would say probably in 2017 or 2018 of me seeking out psychedelics in a more intentional way and using them um, to sort of help overcome and integrate these parts of myself that I, or myself that I was battling with for so long. So um, psilocybin was the entry point. And then gradually, uh, as I sort of worked with them and, and, you know, 
receive the benefits of working with them. Um, I, I started using other medicines like ayahuasca and San Pedro and, and so on. So, yeah. Were you at all hesitant to like, say first try psilocybin or utilize some of the other psychedelics just with kind of the, I know times are definitely changing now, you know, with psychedelic conferences, like, you know, where we met at Wonderland, you know, popping up and, you know, but, but say, you know, five, 10 years ago, that, that definitely was not the case in terms of people's perception, the public perception of psychedelics, like was, were you a lot more, were you a lot hesitant to initially try those out? I would say I wasn't hesitant, but I was waiting sort of, people talk about being called to the medicine, quote unquote, or, or really feeling uh, like a, like an intuitive sense that, you know, it's something that they should explore. So I wasn't, you know, oh, psilocybin is wonderful. Let's dive into all of these different plant medicines and psychedelics. It was definitely more gradual. It was sort of through the plant medicine community that I was involved with here in the Vancouver area. Um, and people sort of were connecting me with, with, you know, different ideas and, you know, um, through through that community and through you know really feeling safe <laughs> i think that's a, such an important part of it having a sense of community having people to prepare and integrate with afterwards um so so necessary and so through uh through that i was sort of introduced to those different medicines and the fear i think wasn't really there my introduction to plant medicine really began with cannabis and uh cannabis sort of showed me that there's more uh, as far as medicine goes than what we're seeing, you know, on TV commercials or in magazines. There's a, a world out there that, you know, we haven't been exposed to. And so I was definitely um, cautious, but I, I would say that I wasn't really afraid. Obviously, there's a little bit of fear before every every plant medicine experience, but I I don't think I was afraid that something bad would happen. Yeah, fair enough. So, and I, I, I noticed that, so your first book was was actually on cannabis. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm curious, like, what um, what were some of the things that, that you learned or just kind of in the research for that book, or maybe your own personal experiences, other people's experiences you may have talked to, um, like, say, uh, in preparation for the book? Uh, like, what did you learn about the ways in which people are using cannabis medically, therapeutically, and achieving achieving certain benefits. Totally. So uh, that book, it's called The Little Book of Cannabis, How Marijuana Can Improve Your Life. And in it, I break it down into 10 chapters and I explore 10 different ways that people are using uh, cannabis to sort of, you know, improve their health, uh, improve certain conditions and, and things as, uh, you know, things as um, sort of universal as improving their food. I have a chapter on cannabis as a superfood uh, where I talk about people who, you know, use it in, in shakes in the morning and they bake it onto their salmon and all sorts of really interesting things that are sort of outside of the realm of um, edibles that really talks about cannabis as a, a nutritional food source. Uh, but then I also talk about things like using cannabis in conjunction with chemotherapy for cancer. So some more serious health conditions, things like chronic pain as well. Uh, I also talk about sex, how cannabis can improve um, sexual experiences, sensitivities, that sort of thing. Um, stress and anxiety, something everybody deals with in, in one facet or another. 
Uh, and I also write about creativity in that book. So it really kind of spans a, um, a, a spectrum of uh, ways to improve your life. Some things that are sort of more universal, like creativity and, and stress and sex and food, and some things that are a little bit more, more uh, health specific. Mm-hmm. Right, right. And so then transitioning to your newest book that just came out, which I'm a big fan of. Um, mm. I read it and really loved it. Um, it's called Psyched, Seven Cutting Edge Psychedelics Changing the World. So you talk about seven different uh, psychedelic drugs um, in, in the book, psilocybin, LSD, DMT, mescaline, MDMA, iboga, and ketamine. And I'd love to just start off by kind of like breaking breaking down maybe each of those, uh, you know, pretty pretty briefly. Um, so starting with psilocybin, um, what, what can you tell me about uh, psilocybin or magic mushrooms? Totally. So psilocybin, as, as you've just referenced, is the sort of the, the key ingredient, the main, um, the, the magic in the mushroom, if you will. Um, there are all sorts of other alkaloids in psilocybin mushrooms, including psilocin and baocystin and a, a whole other group that I'm not going to bother trying to pronounce. Um, but this is sort of the medicine that I would say brought on this uh, psychedelic renaissance or the second wave of research. Um, we saw some of this, you know, these initial studies taking place in like the 2000s on um, how psilocybin could potentially be helpful for people who are experiencing end-of-life anxiety, um, you know, with a life-threatening illness. And, and what this study found was that people who are able to have these sort of um, uh, what's the word? It starts with an M. Like myth, these, like mythical, really profound psychedelic experiences. It it um, lent itself to experiencing less anxiety and depression afterwards. People who were part of the study talked about that experience, like it was the most profound thing in their entire life. And so uh, that was kind of the starting point where people started to realize, like scientists specifically, oh, you know, taking this substance reduces anxiety, it reduces depression. And so um, now we're seeing more and more studies looking into psilocybin for treatment resistant depression and anxiety and PTSD, some of these more specific mental health conditions. Um, and then beyond that, even um, exploration into things like traumatic brain injury and eating disorders and and sort of the list goes on. So um, that's kind of the, the Cole's notes, I guess, <laughs> on, on psilocybin. Um, of course, there's a whole lot more to discuss as far as, you know, dosing and, and what the experience is like. I mean, psilocybin is classified as a classic psychedelic. So I guess maybe I'll, here's a good opportunity to <laughs> move on to, to LSD. Well, um, actually, actually, before we do, I, mm -hmm. I just wanted to ask you a, a quick question in, in terms of you mentioned psilocybin being what at least what you credit to like sort of really spurring the the psychedelic renaissance I was just curious why you think that specific molecule was able to do so totally so in the 19 late 1950s i guess in the 60s when psychedelics were being studied lsd was really the compound that had the most attention and then it really fell out of favor in the media and among scientists and there was all this sort of drama about you know um, is it dangerous? We had, you know, Richard Nixon talking about Timothy Leary, who was sort of this LSD evangelist, like he was, you know, um, one of the most dangerous people in America. And so LSD went from this, you know, very promising, very exciting compound to like, 
everybody was afraid of it, basically. And so that stigma is still very, very strong. A lot of people, when you talk to them about LSD, they have this assumption that, you know, if I take the substance, I'm going to want to jump out of a building or, you know, something dangerous is going to happen. So I think that's part of the reason why LSD wasn't returned to. We do see a few people, a few different um, organizations and institutions looking at it, but it's not really um, being looked at as as much as psilocybin is. I think MDMA is also part of that as well. I mean, the, since the late 1980s, MDMA has been studied in, in one facet or another around the world, thanks to the work of MAP. So uh, that's also kind of a, um, you know, I think, I think a reason, <clears throat> um, yeah, like LSD really is just, it wasn't, um, wasn't, isn't really looked at the same way. And then when we look at some of the other drugs I look at, I look at in the book, um, I think psilocybin just seemed to make the most sense to be frank. Yeah. Sure. So, so we touched on, um, or a little bit on kind of like the negative connotations of LSD, but what about in terms of with the psychedelic Renaissance LSD kind of coming back onto the scene, what are some of the possible things that people could benefit from or what they're studying LSD for? Totally. So one of the things that it was studied for initially was um, alcoholism. So right now, I think there are, there are some sort of returns to to that indication. Um, not to say that the science that was conducted decades ago is not good. I think it was just not conducted to the same scientific standard. And so um, that needs to be proven out again. Um, there are a couple of other indications, but I'll just say again that because LSD still has the stigma around it, um, a lot of the the studies that are happening at this point around it, and there aren't that many, are sort of more about what what is it doing in the brain, um, how is it functioning, that kind of thing. As far as indications, I would say um, what I've read the most about and seen the most research on is is um, alcoholism and alcohol use disorder specifically, but definitely um very much a classic in the in the experience you know and i think there is a whole lot of overlap between the the indications we see for psilocybin and lsd there may just not be uh, as much research on the lsd side yet right and that just made me think i mean i i feel like all all of these psychedelics it seems like could be very or are already very important in terms of people's response like to the pandemic the drastically increased, you know, kind of mental health issues that are emerging and that have been emerging. I mean, specifically what, uh, what brought that to my attention from what you were just saying about LST and like the treatment of alcoholism, you know, we know how it's like liquor sales, you know, have skyrocketed with, you know, when the pandemic first mm. arose and people in lockdown. So it makes sense that things like, uh, you know, these, these compounds could be very, helpful just for our society at large, you know, dealing with something like this. I totally agree with you. I think now is definitely an interesting time to be exploring them given, you know, the huge increases in, in drinking we, we saw throughout the pandemic. Um, but I think people are starting to realize, you know, that alcohol is a not good for you substance and we should be consuming less of it. So I think, yeah, it's definitely interesting to see psychedelics being studied at the same time that um, we're learning that it's that alcohol, this legal drug, <laughs> very much a drug, uh, you know, is sort of being looked at in a different way. So, yeah. for sure. So, how about uh, DMT or uh, also ayahuasca? Mm -hmm. So, DMT, um, 
can be consumed in a couple of different ways. When we think of the, uh, the, the psychedelic tea or brew ayahuasca, which um, is made in a number of different uh, by a number of different indigenous groups uh, throughout South America, um, <clears throat> ayahuasca is really interesting in that it combines two plants. Um, and so normally DMT is not uh, <clears throat> bioavailable when you drink it. So orally bio, bioavailable. By the time it gets to your stomach, there's enzymes in your in your gut that will break down the DMT before it um, before it reaches your brain. So you're not going to have a psychedelic experience if you if you consume DMT um, orally. But in in the ayahuasca tea, there's another um, plant. So there's the chacruna vine or chacruna shrub, the leaves of the chacruna shrub and the ayahuasca vine. One of them contains DMT. One of them contains uh, harmine and some other alkaloids that basically um, kind of block the enzymes in the gut. So when you consume these two plants together, uh, and it's really a, a miracle. It's, it's an incredible thing that this these two plants were combined because there's thousands and thousands and thousands of different plants in, in, in the Amazonian jungle. So um, that this this tea was even created, I think is, is incredible. Um, and so when these two, two plants are mixed together, they're brewed together in this tea and consumed, one is able to have a psychedelic experience uh, with DMT. DMT is also a classic psychedelic. So you'll have a lot of similar um, qualities uh, as this a psilocybin trip or, or a, a trip with LSD, but, but probably magnified, I would say. A lot of people talk about ayahuasca as if it's this really, you know, like if you were to rate psychedelics as, as uh, less scary <laughs> to scary, uh, ayahuasca might be up there for some people on the on the more scary side. Um, and that's not to say it's it's terrifying. It is actually a really beautiful experience as well, but it, it can really take you out of this realm <laughs> into another place uh, in a way that in other classic psychedelics that we've talked about so far um, might not touch. Yeah. And it seems like there's also this sort of lure about ayahuasca, maybe because it's like people, at least in, in the Western world, like kind of traveling to the mm -hmm. Amazonian jungle to do this or something like where, you know, it might be common to go over to a friend's house and take some mushrooms or drop acid, yeah. but not too many people are, uh, you know, drinking ayahuasca, mm -hmm. at least that I know of, you know, here. So totally. it like, I guess what, um, in terms of that, uh, do you, do you find that sort of like public perception of it? Like it has, um, I don't know, a different perception because of that sort of like more difficulty of accessing it? I would say so. And I think also the cultural, um, element, you know, psilocybin mushrooms grow on every continent in the world. Ayahuasca is very much, you know, it's tied to a place, it's tied to a people and a practice. And so there's a whole other um, part to, to consuming it. And, and you could say the same thing for psilocybin mushrooms too. I mean, if you're traveling to um, the parts of Mexico where they're used in this really spiritual way, um, then perhaps that that's something you'll consider in the experience. But like you said, for the most part, people are you know, just, oh, hey, do you want some shrooms? You know, it's sort of a more casual, casual thing. Um, same with, you know, this idea of dropping acid. But I think t uh, taking ayahuasca um, is definitely looked at in a in a different way because it, there's 
these other elements tied to it. And like you said, you know, travel is also also involved in that. Um, but ayahuasca is not the only way to consume DMT. DMT can also be smoked. It can also be taken intravenously. Um, one of the first studies to sort of uh, occur after uh, the 1970s on a psychedelic substance uh, was uh, Rick Strassman's work that looked at intravenous DMT. Um, and, and that's some really, I talk about that in the book and he was generous enough to, to chat with me um, for it as well. And so, yeah, that's um, an interesting compound as well. We see a few different companies looking at DMT, synthetic DMT. Um, and I'm, yeah, I'm curious to see where the research on that one goes. Cause it's, um, like I said, it's, it's also got a little bit of a, like ayahuasca, uh, a little bit of a stigma kind of attached to it. Uh, not in the way that LSD does, but, um, you know, the whole Joe Rogan thing. And we hear a lot more people talking about DMT, uh, than they were five years ago, for sure. Right. Definitely Joe Rogan. And then who was it? I think Aaron Rodgers, I think just credited, uh, well, I guess I was ayahuasca yeah. that he credited like having the best season of his NFL career. So it seems like one that yeah. definitely uh, a lot of like very prominent people speak on. <laughs> yeah. It's been interesting to see, um, athletes talking about psychedelics. I'm particularly drawn to that conversation. I think it's, yeah, really neat. Right. Right. And it, it's something, I mean, I think, uh, what league, I think the NBA, I think it was that just sort of took cannabis off their, I don't know if it was off their list of banned substances, or at least they just don't really like test for it as much. Mm -hmm. And a lot of NBA players are speaking out to like the benefits that they're receiving in terms of just recovering from injuries and, uh, other benefits from, from cannabis. So it makes sense that, that, uh, that psychedelics too are, are going to be popular, I guess, amongst the, the athletic community. What, what other, what other like sort of indications or, uh, things have you heard athletes, uh, be like, why, why do athletes mm. use psychedelics? Totally. So one of the first stories that I wrote on this subject, um, was sort of, um, based around this, um, episode of HBO real sports where like three or four, athletes were interviewed about using psychedelics. Um, one of them was Ian McCall, uh, former UFC fighter. One of them was Daniel Carcillo. Uh, one of them was Kerry Rhodes. So Daniel Carcillo, formerly of the NFL. Um, Kerry Rhodes, former NFL player. And Dean Lister, jiu-jitsu champion. And um, a former uh, UFC fighter. And I like Dean Lister because I do jiu-jitsu. So I was like drawn into this episode very quickly and just wow, you know, blown away by the stories of these men. And then uh, over time got to interview two of them, three of them actually on different occasions for different things. And um, so for Daniel, uh, traumatic brain injury, I mean, his journey is really profound and interesting. I think Riley Cote also in the uh, formerly of the NHL, they both have really profound stories of, you know, beating... <laughs> being the guys on the ice who were beating other people up basically and then dealing with the trauma of that which was really profound you know and also the trauma of um leaving your career early this thing that you've been doing your your whole entire life working for and all of a sudden you know you're not doing it anymore and you you have headaches all the time and you're angry at everybody and you know head injuries are no joke so um learning about the different things that they both had to go through in order to, you know, get to where they are. 
um, now they're both working with psychedelics. It's really cool to see that uh, progression. So I think traumatic brain injury is definitely, um, from what I've observed at the top of the list, as far as athletes go, especially when you consider, you know, some of those higher impact sports, like, you know, hockey and football and, um, MMA in particular. Yeah. Right. And then it seems like psychedelics almost going to have like a twofold way of, of benefiting that potentially, because it's like, not, not only is there like the physical damage to the brain from repeated traumatic brain injuries that it seems like in, in research, psychedelics may have, uh, you know, may be able to reverse some of that, but then also like the, the psychiatric manifestations that are occurring in people who may have otherwise previously been pretty mentally healthy um, mm-hmm. but now or as you mentioned like the anger uh, or irritability this and other depression anxiety other other things that are kind of related to or the, the aftermath of those head injuries so it seems like psychedelics could definitely you know be be a great option for for certain people who are experiencing uh, you know the results of long-term head injuries mm-hmm. totally i mean from what i've observed um, it's, it's quite remarkable the, the results that some people have had and traumatic brain injury. I mean, from, from, you know, what I've written about and also from people within my own life, I know a few people who've had repeated concussions and they have a very hard time looking for, you know, finding treatment that is successful, that helps them. So to know that some people have experienced this complete turnaround, this complete 180, it, uh, yeah, it has my attention. <laughs> for sure. Awesome. Um, well, how about uh, next on the list was mescaline. What can you tell me about that? Totally. So mescaline, uh, also a classic psychedelic. It's found primarily in nature in two uh, two different varieties of cactus in the peyote and in San Pedro. Um, so given you know how uh, rare and extinct peyote is, most people who consume San Pedro or pardon me, uh, most people who consume mescaline, uh, the natural way do so through uh, San, the San Pedro cactus, which um, can be brewed into a tea. Uh, there's a couple of different ways, you know, some people can put it in, they put it into capsules, uh, but there's also synthetic versions of uh, mescaline, um, not studied as frequently as the other substances in the book. Um, in the 50s and 60s, you know, some of the one of the biggest things that came out of the research was that or that looked at mescaline was that you know these experiences experiences are incredibly variable you know from person to person um some people you know had these wonderful blissful experiences and some people were confused and not really into it and and so um it was kind of hard initially for people to pull um pull out you know potential indications for uh, for mescaline from a medical perspective. But what's more interesting to me about mescaline is uh, the cultural uses of it. Um, <clears throat> so I'm talking about peyote, for example, uh, is used among members of the Native American church. Um, that's something that is, you know, a constitutional right, uh, not just in the United States, but throughout North America. And so uh, that's something I talk about a lot in my chapter on mescaline. I also talk about uh, the use of San Pedro in South America, um, sort of the more cultural implications and the history around that. Uh, so yeah, mescaline um, is a substance that I've also had some experience with. And I really, um, it's, it's you know, had some 
yeah, a really, a really good impact on my life, I would say, through integration and, and working with it mindfully. Um, so exploring it uh, this way was a lot of a lot of fun for me, writing about it and, and talking to different experts. And uh, it's one that I hope is, you know, you hear stories here and there of different researchers taking a look at it, but it's definitely, I would say, low on the priority list for for most people. Yeah. Did you find any unique benefits to mescaline like that you didn't get from, say, some of the other classic psychedelics? I would say mescaline is interesting. Um, and, and the way that I've consumed it is through San Pedro. Um, it's a plant medicine experience that's sort of a step up from psilocybin, but like a step down from ayahuasca, I would say. Not uh, quality-wise, but as far as the... Uh, feelings of, you know, the way I described ayahuasca earlier, it really can take you out of your body into this multi-dimensional uh, experience. Um, that's possible with San Pedro, but it's very gentle. It's much more gentle. People talk about this sort of warm, loving kind of masculine grandfather energy. Uh, and that's that's definitely something I've experienced. It's It's a gentle um, substance. It's also can be, um, you know, kind of activating. It, you feel really in your body. It's good to be, you know, you know, I've had um, the opportunity while under the influence of the substance to be outside in nature. And it's also, um, you know, one of the things that ties together all of these classic psychedelics is um, they really do bring out this sense of oneness, this feeling of being connected to the earth and people around you. And that's something that was also very strong for me um, in my handful of experiences with, uh, with San Pedro. Awesome. Now, moving on, how about MDMA? Hmm. So MDMA, uh, one of three substances in the book that is created in a laboratory, has an interesting history, and is probably going to be the first psychedelic uh, that is legally accessible, medically accessible in in the United States. Uh, we've got, you know, these phase three studies by MAPS that are that have been coming out. So yeah, I'm eager to see um, what happens with that. But what we see MDMA studied for primarily is uh, post-traumatic stress disorder. Uh, and in my book, I interview Rick Doblin and I talk to him about, you know, why did you choose to study PTSD? Why did you choose to focus on, you know, veteran populations, that kind of thing? Um, and so that was really interesting to dive into with him um, because he talks about, you know, veterans are, uh, you know, a bipartisan um, issue in the United States. You know, Republicans and Democrats are both uh, in support of, of, you know, helping veterans live better lives. And so uh, his approach in in sort of, um, pushing these studies through and working very hard for a long time uh, to to move this forward, I think has been it's it's admirable. So um, we cover that in the book. Uh, PTSD, I think, is really at the top of the list, but we also see um, people who have suffered from depression and and anxiety and that kind of thing also uh, experience some some benefits with MDMA. And I also talk about sort of the cultural use of um, of the drug, you know, some people still perceive MDMA as this party drug. Uh, and while it is very much still used in those settings, um, knowing what we know about it from a scientific perspective, I think has enabled people to use it more mindfully, even in those settings. So, yeah. 
And it, it brings up uh, an interesting topic that I, I wanted to touch on, which is like sort of the the recreational versus like therapeutic or spiritual use of, of some of these different substances. Um, like it seems like like recreational use has like a very negative connotation. I forgot where I was. I was just reading some article where people they were kind of the uh, author was sort of dispelling that notion that recreation is somehow mm -hmm. bad you know that it's like we can have these amazing experiences and enhanced like fun and all like positive things with like recreational use given it's safe and you know maybe done in a proper like set and setting whatnot but I just wanted to kind of hear your your take on some of these some of the different uh ways in which these uh these substances that you touched on in the book are used totally so i guess i'll start by talking about my perspective on recreational versus versus i think for me i mean i think it's you know humans it's our tendency to to silo things and put things in boxes and so i understand the desire to do this i think though that even a recreational experience can um have benefits that extend beyond just that experience and you know for the folks who think that a recreational experience is somehow bad i mean why is it bad to have fun <laughs> and and if we can do it in a in a mindful way where we're aware of things like set and setting and um we're prepared for any sort of potential risks and those risks are mitigated and whatnot um why can we not you know be adults and and you know have the autonomy to to put whatever substances we want in our bodies and have a good time <laughs> i think uh we we've, we've kind of forgotten that and you know that's what a lot of people do every friday and saturday night they just decide to do it with alcohol instead so uh i think it's kind of silly to paint the recreational experience as something that's bad my first experience with psychedelics was with psilocybin I was 22 years old. I was with five of my friends. We walked down to the beach. It was incredible. I had a great time. And after that, you know, I got curious and I started to look into the other ways that it was used and, and it sort of opened the box for me. So, um, yeah, I, I think it's kind of short-sighted to see recreational experiences as inherently bad. Mm -hmm. And, and bringing it back to, to MDMA, I mm -hmm. know, um, at, at Wonderland, uh, Dr. Matthew Johnson from Johns Hopkins, in one of his presentations, he basically was like listing like the the um, different conditions and like in these sort of self-reported polls of, you know, for those of you who suffer from depression, how much of an impact has MDMA made, you know, whether positive, negative, no change. And it was different, uh, different, like, um, conditions. I think depression, anxiety, and PTSD were the primary ones that I remember him highlighting. And it was like drastic, you know, 85 to 90% increase, you know, benefit um, with like MDMA specifically. And obviously that being like non, you know, medical use. So people just taking MDMA in whatever sort of context, but I just thought that was so fascinating that people who are, you know, so-called like self-medicating, which we also tend to label as bad, but mm -hmm. if these things are not available yet as like therapeutic tools because of their legality, I mean, if they work, they work. So mm -hmm. yeah, 
I, I agree with you. I mean, in, in the sense that we need to stop sort of like demonizing recreational use. Mm-hmm. Totally. And this whole notion of self-medicating, I mean, you know, I live in Canada where healthcare is sort of paid for whatever, <laughs> you know, but in, in a country like the United States where things are a lot more challenging, like, why why would we not be accepting of this notion this idea of self-medicating you know it's hard to access self-care so i think when people seek out other um other ways of healing other kinds of medicine we should not interrupt them or interfere with their ability to do that in any way well put what about um moving on to another one another psychedelic uh iboga iboga or ibogaine Mm -hmm. Totally. So iboga is um, a shrub that originated is native to um, West Africa, Gabon specifically. And uh, iboga is also um, the, the medicine of iboga. I guess the plant medicine component comes from the roots of the shrub. Uh, and so in iboga are uh, several alkaloids, including ibogaine. Um, ibogaine can be taken um synthetically naturally uh and is used primarily for people who are suffering from opiate use disorder uh and what's really interesting about iboga i mean iboga also has this ability whether you're if you're taking the sort of natural substance which would be iboga or the um the alkaloid on its own you know isolated ibogaine um both of them have the ability to to help someone through the withdrawals that happen um, when you're coming off of opiates. And so if you talk to someone who is, is suffering from opiate use disorder, um, the primary reason most people don't stop is because the withdrawal it can be so incredibly awful. Uh, and so what's really fascinating about Ibogaine and Iboga is that they can sort of interrupt this withdrawal and prevent it from happening. And by, it's a 12-hour experience generally with Ibogaine or with Iboga. Um, can be longer for some people. It will. It takes, you know, if you're if you're traveling to Gabon to do iboga the traditional way with the buiti, it might be a couple of days. Um, and so the idea is, by the end of this treatment, um, not only are you, you know, is, are is all the are all the opiates out of your system, but you you aren't craving them anymore. And so uh, one of the first people to sort of discover this was a guy named Howard Lotsoff, and he was always fascinated with this, this idea of the anti-drug drug. Uh, and he took began one day and just thought, okay, whatever, I'm going to have this wild experience. And he realized, you know, I think a day or two after that since the experience, he hadn't had any cravings for, for heroin. And so that was sort of the beginning of um, looking into to Ibogaine in this way. But there's a really interesting history around uh, Ibogaine and Iboga as well. I unpack a lot of that in the book, um, talking about the different cultural implications of Iboga. Um, it's used by the Buiti in Gabon. Um, you know, it's use in places like Mexico where it's uh, unregulated, in New Zealand where it's uh, actually legal. Um, it's used there, you know, it's recognized as a uh, a way to help people through opiate use disorder. So, uh Iboga, Ibogaine are interesting in that they're both, there's some risk associated with them. Um, You know, there's some interference that can happen with the QT interval. Um, So it's a hard thing. (laughs) Uh, I I won't get too too into that, but um, 
it's actually a, a subject that I explore more deeply in a podcast of my own that's uh, just come out called Root Medicine. Uh, and I decided to pursue that because Ibogaine and Iboga are both so, uh, they both have so much potential, but there's a lot of confusion around them and a lot of um, fear. And and so uh, that's been really interesting for me to sort of dive into more deeply. Yeah, and I'll, I'll definitely put a, a link to that podcast in in the show notes so for the listeners who are enjoying our conversation they can go and check that out if they want to learn more uh but i i was just going to say with with iboga i mean it it makes sense that i mean or just the the medical necessity of like addiction being something that's so difficult to treat i mean i worked at a, a rehabilitation center for a couple of years and just became aware of how high the the relapse rate really is even for people who seemingly you know are successful at first and you know exiting they they detox and get out of the facility but just how many repeat um, patients there were was just remarkable and and really heartbreaking so if, if there's a treatment that can have great efficacy for you know opiate addiction it, it seems seems like iboga should definitely you know be be explored further um, but it sounds like from from what you're saying about uh I mean, both in, in terms of it being used for detoxing off opiates, along with sort of the uh, the heart uh, issue possibility, it seems like something that I would think would be better to be done like in some sort of like medical context. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And I would agree. Uh, the thing with Ibogaine is what happens is a lot of people who use it and experience it, they're blown away and they become... Uh, Ibogaine evangelists, and they decide that they want to open up a clinic of their own. And as well-intentioned as these people may be, they might not have the medical training, the history, they might not know who to connect with in order to um, sort of facilitate this treatment in a safe way. And uh, I don't mean to, to scare people because it can be facilitated safely. There are people who have been working with this medicine in a medical context for 20 years or more who, who have protocols that mitigate these risks. But when you're going to see someone in Mexico who, you know, at a, at a clinic that's just opened up or perhaps, you know, there's, you know, it, there, there's a lot, there's a spectrum of availability as far as Ibogaine clinics out there. And there's some really wonderful, reputable ones. And there are some other ones that don't necessarily have, uh, you know, the resources and the, the medical um, safety protocols in place. So I would encourage people who are interested in learning more about Ibogaine and who are perhaps even interested in pursuing Ibogaine treatment to really do their homework um, because, it does come with this this risk. Okay, cool. So we've touched on, I believe, six of the seven different psychedelics that you hit on on the book. Uh, mm -hmm. How about the last one, uh, ketamine? Totally. So ketamine, uh, very much the only psychedelic that you can access legally at this point in time, I think, in, in North America. Uh, there are a couple of programs in Canada, but they're very hard to... <laughs> hard to access for psilocybin, uh, but ketamine um, is really is a substance that has an interesting history. It's used in a couple of different ways. It's used as an anesthetic, it's used as a pain medication, and at a different dose, it also has psychedelic properties. Um, so it's a dissociative. It's not a classic psychedelic. I wouldn't group it in with 
psilocybin, LSD, DMT, or mescaline, it sits in a category of its own. And some people even doubt whether or not it's, you know, they, they're, they're not convinced that it's a psychedelic, which is fair. Um, but we do see it being used in this way in clinics throughout the United States. We've also seen an increase in this substance being offered through mail order, uh, which I think is really interesting. Um, I'll, I'll pin that conversation. Maybe we can chat about that after. But uh, ketamine is primarily being studied and used in that capacity, uh, meaning in the clinic sort of psychedelic experience um, way uh, for people who suffer from treatment-resistant depression. Um, and when we look at ketamine and that use specifically, we hear a lot about people who are really incredibly depressed, like don't want to get out of bed, can't do anything at the end of the rope, nothing has worked for them. Uh, ketamine can pull someone out of that, that hole, that extreme feeling of depression um, for about two weeks. And so um, that's sort of the, the, it's sort of described as creating a window for people to sort of feel something other than than totally depressed, which um, when you're there, like just the idea of that sounds miraculous. So um, I think it's, it's really neat to see the way that it's being used in that capacity. Uh, and it's being studied for a couple of other indications as well. I interviewed someone in the book, uh, Dr. Reed Robison, who uses it for patients who suffer from eating disorders. And so ketamine is a dissociative. This quality of the drug actually comes in really handy for people who are suffering from eating disorders because it's able to sort of pull them out of their body, which they're thinking about all the time and obsessing about all the time and see in a different way. Um, so I d dive into that subject matter a little bit as well. And I really fascinated by its use uh, in that way too, because a lot of people when they hear like eating disorders, what, they're very confused. So uh, to hear firsthand from Dr. Robison about how he's seen it work um, for for his patients uh, was really interesting. Mm -hmm. And it just makes me think like hearing that, hearing all of that, it makes me think about like if, if, there, if ketamine was available, I don't think it's at least to my knowledge, not used in this context yet, but you know, if it was available, say like in, you know, like psychiatric wards or emergency rooms, like if someone's having like a, a like very depressive episode or suicidal, like mm -hmm. they might not have access to like a, you know, signing up to go to a ketamine clinic and paying hundreds and hundreds of dollars for sessions. Like if, if something yeah. could just drastically like ketamine works very quickly and in depression in my understanding and could mm -hmm. just drastically pull someone out of that state. I mean, it seems like that could save countless lives. Mm -hmm. Totally. I think it's definitely something that needs to be looked at more closely and considered more closely from the perspective that you're talking about, like in that emergency setting. Uh, and, you know, on the note of the cost of these sort of ketamine treatments, it's, it's, it's incredibly cost prohibitive in a lot of cases. I mean, we're seeing an increase of these services that, you know, will mail ketamine to your home and might have, you know, a telehealth element to it. Um, but it's, it definitely has the potential to sort of change that, that treatment element. I mean, people also talk about, you know, is there a risk associated with its use? Because what happens after two weeks? Um, but when we look at some of these uh, clinics that are open, they offer sort of uh, kind of a protocol that involves several treatments. And so 
the research that's been coming out on that has been really interesting, the way that's been being used. I think um, I've spoken with a few people who have found it to be really helpful. Um, so I think, you know, some people also are saying, oh, well, mail order cannabine, you know, that can't be safe. And, and initially that was also my thought. And then I also thought, you know, look at all these other substances that are on the market that we just give people willy-nilly, like benzodiazepines and and uh, opioids and and all these other, you know, that have created an incredibly problematic situation for the continent, really. Um, and so, yeah, I think every every drug has its risks. That, that would be my my sort of response to those folks. But I would encourage people that if they're going to have um you know, they're going to zero on zero in on an issue about a particular substance, like pull that lens back a little bit, because so many of the substances that we're taking every single day uh, have a lot of risks as well. Agreed. Well, Amanda, um, we're coming up onto the end of the show, but before we wrap up, is there anything else uh, related to your book that you would like listeners to know? Um, or anything pertaining to the, just our overall discussion of, of psychedelics and cannabis? Sure. Um, well, the book is called Psyched. I'm going to hold it up because I'm cheesy like that. <laughs> uh, Seven Cutting Edge Psychedelics Changing the World. Um, and in it, I talk about the history. We, we talked about some of that today, but um, you know, the history behind all of these different drugs that we talked about, you know, the medical uses, the science, the cultural implications, interviews with some really wonderful, generous people who uh, gave me a lot of time and, and wisdom. So thank you to those, those folks. And I also have case studies in the book. So people, you know, average folks who have used psychedelics and had um, really cool, profound um, experiences. And I decided to include those because just, just to show that, you know, every psychedelic experience is different, even if it's the same person in the same place with the same substance. Um, yeah, there is no, there is no one psychedelic experience. Anyway, uh, you can find my book on Amazon at Barnes and Noble, basically anywhere books are sold. And, uh, I would encourage you to go to your indie local bookshop to try and find it. Cool. Cool. Well, um, we'll definitely include uh, links to access the the book um, and and your podcast as well. Uh, for those listeners who enjoyed the show today, you can listen to the Neuroflex podcast, uh, the audio on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or most other major audio streaming platforms. If you instead want to watch the video, you can go ahead and check out our YouTube channel, Neuroflex, and find the full video episodes on there. So Amanda, really wanted to thank you so much for coming on the show today and just sharing all your, your knowledge and expertise. Thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure to talk and I really appreciate your interest in my book. It was great to meet you a couple of weeks ago in Miami.